I'm Will Caverly, and this is the Counted as Cast podcast series. My parents always took voting seriously. They did it often, and they also impressed on me why a citizen should vote and tried to explain to me why many didn't. As a result, I have memories of going to vote with my parents as a kid, whose memories are larger than life like a lot of childhood memories. I was small, so the voting booth looked huge. The legal-sized paper looked kind of anachronistic, And the rituals of filling in bubbles kind of reminded me of a Scantron test, for anyone who remembers those. The precinct had the air of sacredness, kind of the feeling you get going to a monument or a courthouse or a cathedral. My brother Matt and I were told to be calm, stay close to my parents, and respect the setting. Understand that my brother and I were known for being holy terrors when you brought us to a public place. You should have seen us at the grocery store. But I don't ever remember horsing around at the polls. Maybe my parents would disagree, but I'd like to think we understood the seriousness of the setting. To this day, I get the same sacred feeling when I go into the polls. That feeling intensified in November of 2016. That was the most contentious set of elections in my lifetime, seconded only by the 2000 presidential election when I wasn't even old enough to vote. My precinct in southeastern Pennsylvania felt tense. Poll observer Checked my name off his list as the ladies who worked the polls for my township checked me off theirs. It's 2019 as I record this podcast, and that election has never seemed to end. The seriousness of any election arises from the stakes. Government possesses a monopoly on violence, as the philosopher Walter Benjamin put it. We put that monopoly into the hands of representatives. Everyone in the precinct at an election knows that they have their part to play. The voters cast their ballots. The poll workers play out the rules, and the observers watch. You expect, and you silently demand, that your vote be counted as cast. This podcast series is about an election that took place over 70 years ago in rural McMinn County, Tennessee. That election, and the mechanisms that I noted from the time I was small, all failed. The so-called Battle of Athens that resulted has now become legend. I myself found it mentioned deep in the comments on an internet message board. Transmitted through time and some interesting sources, the Battle of Athens is a tale that sounds like it could have come out of a movie. A civic battle that becomes kinetic in the mountains of the American hinterland, fought between haggard veterans returning from World War II and a corrupt political machine in their rural hometown. It sounds outrageous, and it was. In this Battle of Athens, you find a range of American experiences and concepts that aren't at all unfamiliar to us today. You get electioneering and cheating, politics and peace, veterans versus draft dodgers, the young versus the old, militias versus government, racism, sexism, heroism, and of course, Democrats and Republicans. You might have run into the Battle of Athens story before. The sources out there are eclectic. There's a made-for-TV movie released by the Hallmark Channel, with Time Sizemore in the lead. Here's a clip from the trailer. From the Hallmark Hall of Fame, they won a distant war for freedom. But the home they fought for was no longer the one they had left behind. That's not all. 
There's a nonfiction historical novel, just to make things interesting. Plus, you find fake news at the United States paper of record, the New York Times. Researching this battle was a lot of fun. It's been 30 years or so since someone took a shot at a broad retelling of the story for a popular audience. That means there hasn't yet been a focused, long-form podcast on the subject either, and I think it's time. More than ever, the Battle of Athens is an American story that needs telling. In the Counted As Cast podcast, I'll give you my version of the Battle of Athens. My primary goal is to tell an entertaining story. I want you to feel the emotions of the moment and walk in the shoes of the players there. I'll bring together the sources I can find, audio artifacts that might give you a feel for the first half of the 20th century, but most of all, I'll try and have fun with a sometimes complex tale. Before I get you introduced to the world of McMinn County, Tennessee, I'll talk a little bit about why this story captured my imagination. First, I've never gotten over a childhood fascination with World War II. My interest in the most brutal war humans have ever fought ranges from the weapons they used to the fearsome battles that brought down the most powerful nations of the era. That's all in my blood, I think. Both of my grandfathers were conscripted in World War II, though neither sought direct combat. My paternal grandfather served in the Navy and went on to Hoover's FBI in a lifetime of civil service. The closest my maternal grandfather got to combat was a nervous moment during the occupation of Japan. A civilian actually surprised him at his post. They came around the corner of a truck and surprised young Bill Miller, nearly getting themselves shot by a young man in a foreign land. I enjoy a good war story. You're going to hear them, because the Battle of Athens was fought by men who'd survived a terrible conflict. We'll delve into street battles, arms, armaments, and injuries, all the stuff that makes the Battle of Athens itself a good war story. But besides the war stories, I've also been interested in the politics of human conflict. Before, during, after. If you're a member of the human species, you live with the consequences of the Second World War. The same grandfather who went to Japan as a young man later kept a biography of Adolf Hitler on his shelf because he thought it was important to understand that Hitler was a man and a politician. Similarly, the Battle of Athens isn't just about veterans, firearms, an impromptu militia, though that's one way to tell the tale. This is also a story of corrupt politics, and that's the best kind of re- to read about and the worst to live under. If you're interested in the mechanics of how power is transferred, you've come to the right place. With all that said, I'm no historian, just someone equipped with the three R's, reading, writing, and research. That's a joke for all you spelling bee winners out there. As a non-academic historian, let me give a few editorial notes about this subject before I dive in as, a, as an amateur. One, I've tried to be accurate. I've agonized over details and tried hard to fill in gaps in the record. That's not easy with this subject. One thing you'll sense throughout this podcast is that the sources are cagey. Details are skipped over. Many people never tell their stories. There are sure to be mistakes in the narrative I've put together simply because this battle was, and likely still is, seen as being something of a local mishap. There's few authoritative sources. One's being written, and I'll be reading over it as soon as it comes out. But until we have something more solid, I've tried to read as widely as I can. If I only have one source for a claim about an event, I'll try and say so. By the way, I appreciate your corrections. If I get enough of them, I'll either give up podcasting altogether or maybe just make a special edition of the podcast with the corrections. But remember that 70 years, 80 years almost, of a community shying away from a story as Athens has creates an interesting dynamic for investigation. Another point. We have six chapters on this podcast. Those chapters tell the story, 
but there will also be special edition podcasts that will give you context or expand on something I found interesting. Think of them as uh, footnotes, endnotes, and appendices. Lastly, I've preserved the language of the period where possible. How people talk to each other in the 1940s is often offensive by modern standards, but I don't see a reason to censor anyone. You'll hear slurs, curses, and other noxious language, and we're keeping that in. Now that we have all that out of the way, I think I've found an enjoyable way to tell this story. First, I've picked two men whose stories cut through the fog of war surrounding the conflict. The second of those men, Paul Cantrell, represents the corrupt political machine central to this story. The first, who you'll get to sit down with right now, Bill White, professes to be at the center of virtually every important event on the GI side of the conflict. These two, a seasoned politician and a young GI, are the foundation of the structure we're building. Others will come and go in the story, but I think it's important for you to have someone to root for, or root against. After we meet our two characters, the soldier and the politician, we'll dive into the campaign of the spring of 1946. The Battle of Athens occurs on August 1st, 1946, and by then you'll know all the players and the context. So let's get into it then. Sit back and enjoy Chapter 1, The Soldier. Most epic stories start humbly. Let's begin with the smallest unit of any good story, one person. This chapter will outline the experiences of Bill White, a World War II veteran who played a central role in the battle. In this podcast, you'll get a ground-level view of eastern Tennessee, the setting for most of this story, but you'll also follow Bill abroad on his adventures before returning home to a world changed for the worst. Let's talk about Tennessee for a moment. The thick red curtains of the Battle of Athens should open on a map of Tennessee. The shape of the state is easily sliced into thirds. Starting from the left, you have western Tennessee, where Memphis is. Then comes middle Tennessee, where Nashville, which is the state capital of Tennessee, and country music, sits. Eastern Tennessee, all the way to the right, encompasses parts of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Cumberland Plateau. McMinn County and Athens, the county seat of McMinn County, are right in the middle of the valley between those two mountain ranges. All the sources I read pretty much agreed on one thing. Eastern Tennessee was, and is, a great place to spend a life. The land is bountiful, the people are strong and in touch with their history. Sycamore, ash, and elm keeps the rivers and streams among the rolling hills cool. Fireflies light up the night after hot summer days. The people living there live with an Appalachian heritage. The Appalachian mountain range fosters a kind of mountain culture as they cut across the East Coast. That includes some kicking tunes, like you just heard. Eastern Tennessee is, for the most part, very much an inheritor of that Appalachian culture. Now, to the man who lived in that break in the mountains, Bill White, our soldier. He was born in 1924. Though quiet, those that met Bill White said he exudes a imperturbable air. You don't shake Bill White very easily. 
He's not that tall, but he's wiry, with sharp blue eyes that stare. You get an impression of great inner strength. Bill was born in Knoxville, but came of age in McMinn County on the Little Tennessee River, working class and the son of a power station manager. Bill White had Cherokee blood in his veins. Another native Tennessean, President Andrew Jackson, had a century before Bill was born, ordered the Cherokee tribes west. The so-called Trail of Tears went right through McMinn County. Some in eastern Tennessee even helped in the expulsions, aiding federal forces and driving Indians ahead of them like cattle. Some remained, though, and that's how we get Bill White. The Cherokee blood came from his mother's side, while his father was Scotch-Irish, a descendant of the original European settlers of Tennessee. That Scotch-Irish and Cherokee heritage, Bill says, in an oral history recorded by the University of Tennessee, well, that was a bad mixture. If you ask Bill, a lot of his tough personality came from that genetic cocktail. Bill describes his childhood in McMinn County as hard scrabble. He's around five or six when the Great Depression hits. You know, they say that you can't remember anything before age five or so. Imagine coming of age in the nastiest economic circumstances in recent memory. For most people in America, the Great Depression meant desperation and hunger. Bill White's father didn't earn the kind of money some in the county might have had. The Whites didn't own businesses or have stock or sit on boards of directors. When they picked up from Knoxville, his father's job change likely came from the economic shocks of the Depression. The White family arrived in Athens, Tennessee, the seat of McMinn County, and that's where Bill would spend most of his childhood. Town life in Athens didn't mean wealth or class. Think dense and dirty. As urban as McMinn County got, but small from a modern perspective. McMinn County and its most urban area, Athens, weren't rich by 20th century standards, not by any means. Only a two-lane paved road connected Athens to its neighboring cities like Chattanooga to the south. Nearly all the roads in Athens, the county seat, were dirt. Another character I'll introduce you to later rode a horse to Athens because cars were a luxury. And remember, this is the 1920s, 1930s. Athens, at the time of Bill White's residency, had a population of less than 7,000, but it was the most bustling place around. Farmers sold their wares in markets, and businesses ran out of the ubiquitous short, red brick buildings of the city. During the boom years, furniture and appliance factories dominated the town's economy. But by the time Bill arrived as a child, the boom had already turned to bust. He saw the town at its weakest and its worst. Bill's house was on Clay Street in Athens, a modest clapboard home. It faced the Cedar Grove Cemetery down Clay Street. Bill White did not have an easy time of it in Athens. He says that Athens became his whole world, the rest of the planet existing past the blinders of his new life. In this case, new doesn't mean good. It was even tougher for a self-described hillbilly like Bill because Bill liked to speak his mind. He argued when being quiet would serve him better. Bill wouldn't take no for an answer. He says he fought his way to school and fought his way home from school and spent a lot of time fighting at school. Schools in Athens, Tennessee wouldn't be acceptable by modern standards. As Bill started school in Athens, he had to get shoulder to shoulder with other students. Every school was overcrowded. Without tax revenue to expand or hire more teachers, the overworked ones gave what lessons they could. 
Many could barely read or write themselves. Like many schools throughout America in the 20th century, the Bible formed much of the lesson plan. Teachers allegedly faced another challenge, namely politics. Apparently, the power of political figures in the county was getting strong enough that potential teachers had to prove loyalty to the new regime before being hired. Yeah, put yourself in that position, being a teacher. Now imagine pledging fealty to a political party in order to teach kids how to read. This political cast to events in Athens would only increase over time. This was because the political leadership of Athens changed in 1936, when Bill was around 10 or 11 years old. A Democrat named Paul Cantrell, who you'll meet in our next chapter, was accused of serious shenanigans in that 1936 election. You see, the 1936 election was an upset. McMinn County in eastern Tennessee never went Democrat. In fact, unlike the rest of the state, many of the Appalachian folk of eastern Tennessee threw in for the Union in the Civil War. That was a bold move in a state far to the south of the Mason-Dixon line. Eastern Tennessee paid for it later when they were forced to billet soldiers for the Confederacy. But a Democrat named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who you might have heard of before, swept the nation in 1936. His blue boom reached as far as eastern Tennessee, and it turned McMinn County the way of the Democrats. Now, in the next chapter, you hear a lot more about the politics of Athens. The political world was swirling around Athens and controlled by players like FDR and other Democrats in Tennessee. Many Republicans in Tennessee had voted for FDR just to try and find some relief from the crippling depression. For Bill, much of it must have been out of sight as a young kid. The more he fought, the more he struggled, the more Bill became frustrated with schooling. School seemed less like an education in the arithmetic of survival than it did an education in math and reading. He says in the oral history, and I'm quoting, I thought you were more or less a convict than a student. They lined you up outside whether it was raining or snowing or whatever it was. You stayed out there until the bell rang and they marched you in, unquote. If a class of children in 2019 were left out in the rain for any reason, imagine the emails sent to the school board and the social media posts and all that. The life of a school child in Tennessee in the 30s was far different from what we expect out of children today. That said, Bill did make good memories out of bad times. He spent a lot of time fishing in the streams of eastern Tennessee, hunting squirrels. In the afternoon, he listened to popular radio programs of the day like Jack Armstrong, The All-American Boy. Jack Armstrong. Jack Armstrong. Jack Armstrong. Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy. In the Jack Armstrong show, Bill White heard about a boy visiting faraway places doing adventurous things. He also listened to The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet. He hunts the biggest of all game, public enemies that even the G-men cannot reach. The Green Hornet. The Green Hornet was a masked vigilante crime fighter that was a newspaper publisher in his off-duty. Much later, actor Seth Rogen would play the Green Hornet as an overweight loser, but in the 1930s, the Green Hornet was a radical force for healthy journalism and the rule of law. Whatever he listened to, radio took Bill away from his sometimes harsh realities. When asked in the oral history about whether Bill went to the movies, he says, quote, 
If I could ever get a dime to go, I did, end quote. How did he get a dime? He worked a full day in the Bramble Meadows, picking blackberries and selling them for five cents a gallon. He kept rabbits, gathered whatever produce he could from the woods. He helped in the garden and milked the cow. At night, they shelled corn together. Bill didn't have indoor plumbing and had to use a privy, also known as an outhouse. That should give you an idea of how poor he was and how Appalachian culture is one of struggle. Finally, enough was enough at school. At 15, Bill White dropped out. He says that he left after his first year. He got a job at Alcoa. Today, Alcoa is a global manufacturing company, particularly aluminum. But back in Bill White's day, it was also working hand-in-hand with something called the Tennessee Valley Authority. The Tennessee Valley Authority, created by the Democrat Roosevelt administration, was a pseudo-corporation designed to bring economic revitalization to the Tennessee Valley, of which eastern Tennessee and McMinn County was a part. The authority bought and built dams and provided power to various manufacturing plants. Democrats, including McMinn County under Paul Cantrell, had the run of Tennessee. FDR awarded them with generous TVA contracts. Bill himself worked as a steel rigger, which meant structural work. As I'm writing this in 2019, I can't imagine 15-year-olds doing structural work, but that was the reality of the life then. With this Alcoa job, Bill White ended up being a 15-year-old beneficiary of government largesse. After work, pugnacious Bill White got into arguments and sometimes fistfights and usually went hungry. He survived through lean years. You know that old expression about how people always talk about walking long distances when they're young? You know, I had to walk this many miles to get to school. Well, in Bill White's day, that was true. He says he regularly walked 10 miles in the Tennessee summers to get to work or visit someone. That was less than 100 years ago. As the 1930s slogged along, social programs set up by FDR did inject economic steroids into the country. The Tennessee Valley Authority brought a lot of farms back from the brink. But that boom didn't last. In 37 and 38, the country saw another jump in employment, more business failures, and general mayhem. Rural communities were hammered. Even a young person like Bill White probably had to deal with the anxiety of layoffs and a lack of work, even at 15, 16, 17, when he was working as a rigger. The new Democrat administration in Athens, under this Paul Cantrell, made sure that the federal government monies flowed in as much as they could. Cantrell became quite popular, Bill says, because of his alliance with the Democrat movement nationwide. But as Bill became older, he heard stories about Paul Cantrell, about how he arrested political opponents or took ballot boxes. Bill never strikes me as someone overly interested in politics, but the whispers of corruption definitely would spread. That said, America changed with a single event. Bill and the town of Athens were no exceptions. The country, as it slogged through the after-effects of the Great Depression, faced a new threat. For those Americans who lived in 1941, that first time hearing about the attack on Pearl Harbor was probably a flashbulb memory. You might have heard of this phenomenon. Today, try mentioning your memories of 9-11 if you were around to remember it. If people witnessed 9-11, if they watched it all go down, they'll have a story. Everyone knows where they stood when they first heard that news. Bill first heard about Pearl Harbor at home with a special news interruption. I don't know what broadcast Bill heard. Try this broadcast on for size. From the NBC newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says 
that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. We will interrupt all programs to give you latest news bulletins. Stay tuned to this station. The Jell-O program brought to you by Jell-O and Jell-O puddings. Ladies and gentlemen, a special announcement. How about that Jell-O ad? There's always room for Jell-O, right? Here's another one. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. We take you now to Washington. When local recruiters announced that the military sought out enlistees, Bill went home to his mother in Athens. He told her he was shipping out. He remembers it this way, quote, I'm going to go down and join the Marines. About time I get out of here anyway, end quote. What was he leaving behind? A dangerous rigging job in a town where he did little but get into fistfights. Then again, the idea of joining the military based on an attack half a world away baffles me. I can't imagine volunteering to fight overseas. But so many did enlist, not only in Tennessee, but around the nation. They found the idea of fighting back against attack compelling. Many, like Bill White, also wanted to leave home. They'd spent their entire waking lives in difficult and even impossible circumstances. On the other hand, Bill and others saw the Japanese as an existential threat to the United States. They had good reason to. If you don't listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast, you should. He does an excellent job of capturing the Japanese story from World War II in one of his podcasts called Supernova in the East. The Japanese weren't exactly known for their clemency and mercy toward places they occupied. Actually, the opposite. The world had watched the rape of Nanking, for example, which gave Americans an inkling of what a Japanese occupation might look like. The rest of the Axis powers, like Nazi Germany, generally weren't known for their human rights concerns either. One wrinkle. Bill White was 17. On paper... Uncle Sam only accepted you at age 18. So, like many other enlisted in World War II, Bill lied about his age. They took him in. Did those recruiters know that they enlisted men too young to serve? Probably, but there was a war on. By January, Bill White was sent off to San Diego for boot camp. The sounds you just heard came from a video about marine training. You'll see in this video drills, physical conditioning, and even bayonet sparring that looks like a great way to experience a trip to the hospital. I imagine you're about as surprised as I am, meaning not really at all, that Bill White had issues with authority in camp. He hated drill instructors and he hated being ordered around. But he went through it because he'd volunteered and he wanted to fight. Sure, you might say plenty of people wanted to fight, but... We're talking about Bill. Bill really wanted to fight. I mean that it was in his blood. When the Marine Corps asked for volunteers for a special forces unit, Bill White volunteered. Maybe they made 17-year-olds out of tougher stuff back then. He actually talks about that, and it's interesting. Quote, Those boys was right out of the Depression. Still had a little depression going on. They was stout, worked hard, physically tough. They haven't got boys like that anymore. We walked everywhere we went. If we were going 10 miles, we walked 10 miles, and we walked back 10 miles. We didn't have no cars. We didn't eat no candy or cake. We didn't have no money to buy it. We didn't even smoke because we didn't have no money to buy cigarettes or tobacco either, you see. 
end quote. I don't doubt him. Remember, he grew up in the toughest times of the 20th century. Bill then talks a little bit about how the Marines outfitted him. Quote, When I was in the Marines, I had two pair of run-over brogan shoes and no socks and no underwear. That's all I had. And whenever I got in there and they gave me three or four pairs of shoes, they gave me a dozen socks, they gave me a dozen pair of underwear, undershirts, and all the clothes I could wear and the best meals I had ever ate. I had never gotten full until I got into the Marines. End quote. Can you imagine that? I can't. Never being full until you volunteered yourself up to fight across the ocean? It's wild. Speaking of oceans, becoming a Marine gave Bill his first sight of one. He says, quote, The biggest thing I had ever seen was a pond. End quote. As a Marine, Bill would soon get his fill of ocean water. Bill tested into Special Forces. The unit he joined was called the 1st Raider Battalion. Executive orders from FDR created this concept of specially trained elite forces. The idea was that the Marines would send in the Raiders ahead of normal infantry to soften up hardened targets like occupied islands. Bill White, having volunteered for the Raiders, received additional training. He says in this oral history that it involved running up hills and being shot at with live ammunition. Because of his big mouth and fearless nature, Bill did spend some time in the brig, eating bread and water, but he was also a fierce soldier and it must have been recognized. Quote, I wanted to get in where it was the roughest. I was wanting the roughest thing I could get into. End quote. He felt ready. New enlistees, having finished training, itched for deployment. Bill says on this, quote, Well, we was like young tigers. We wanted to go and we could not get there fast enough. We thought that war was going to be over before we got there. I told them, I said, Man, this war may be over before we can get over there and do any fighting. They said, yeah, we're afraid it might be that too. We want to hurry up and get over there and get in that first bunch, end quote. Attached to the 1st Marine Division, shipping out of San Diego, Bill White joined a massive amphibious assault fleet setting out to an archipelago called Guadalcanal. It might help to look up a map of the Japanese advance across the Pacific theater during World War II. Might help you keep your mind's eye following a kid from Tennessee as he set out across the world's largest ocean. But let me try to explain it to you. The island chain of Guadalcanal actually lays pretty close to Australia, New Zealand, and the many islands in between. In 1941 and 1942, the Japanese held archipelagos across the Pacific, creating a kind of perimeter defense of their own island. To the east, they occupied China and been engaged with Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese Nationalist Forces for years prior. It took two months for Bill White to make it to the fighting he wanted so bad to be a part of. They spent some time cooling their heels in Australia, biding their time. The 1st Marine Division's time in Australia meant that they are, to this day, associated with the unofficial anthem of Australia called Waltzing Matilda. came. 
looking at old pictures of the island of Guadalcanal, it's the kind of setting you picture at a Lord of the Flies or Treasure Island. Swaying palm trees, thick undergrowth, and sandy beaches. A Life magazine article from 1943 describes Guadalcanal this way, quote, The jungle is a solid wall of vegetable growth, 100 feet tall. There are huge palm leaves, elephant ear leaves of the taro, ferns and jagged leaves of the banana trees, all tangled together in a fantastic web. Near the ground, there are thousands of kinds of insects, praying mantises, ants, and spiders. In such hot, damp weather, mosquitoes live luxuriantly. Sometimes they embed themselves so deeply in the soldier's flesh they have to be cut out, end quote. Strangely, when they first made it to Guadalcanal, the 1st Marine Division walked onto the beach. No resistance met them. Bill and the raiders had orders to scale the bluffs above the beach and take out some artillery. Again, a raider job softening our targets. Bill's unit got to the high ground and found nothing, no guns. Bill and the rest of his unit then heard fighting start elsewhere. The order came in for him to reinforce the first paratroopers on Tanambogo, another island in the chain. The raiders wanted contact with the enemy, and they wanted it now. Jumping back in their Higgins boats, which was a kind of amphibious landing craft, Bill and the raiders found another empty beach, no resistance, and so they kept following the sounds of fighting. Now, now it was getting loud. You have to imagine they saw smoke and heard the hiss of bullets as they careened through the jungle. Then they found the bodies. Bill says they found Marines strewn across the ground, shot through the head. In the oral history, remembering this gruesome sight, he says, quote, Man, they told us the Japanese weren't good fighters. We thought we'd come in there and run them down and shoot them like rabbits, end quote. He said the command speculated that the conflict would be over in a week or two. Bill and his raiders would fight on Guadalcanal for seven months. That initial engagement at the landing site of the first paratroopers turned into a bare-knuckle brawl sprawling miles of thick jungle. The Japanese had entrenched in the interior of the island. Using superior numbers, the raiders and the 1st Marine Division drove off the Japanese or they killed them in their entrenchments. But the Japanese learned and they shifted their tactics. They had seen how easily the Marines could surround them if they didn't secure beachheads. When the Marines tried to hop to the next island in the chain, they met resistance right on the beach. Bill White talks about taking the Higgins boats across the water and watching the slaughter. Marines reaching the beach without support would be shot or even slashed by samurai sword. The Japanese, knowing that the Americans watched their fellow soldiers be cut down, threw the injured around the bonfire so their screams cut the daylight. Bill White describes how machine guns killed 17 men on his boat, leaving him the last one standing. The only reason he survived was he was taking pot shots at the people on the beach. He had stories like that for pages in this oral history. He described the taking of Tulagi and how him and the Marines would sneak onto the larger island of Guadalcanal, where the Japanese had the most control, by Higgins' boat. They'd ambush the Japanese as they cooked rice for dinner, tossing grenades and opening fire to kill hundreds at a time. Bill White once swam with sharks after Japanese artillery shelled his boat. Bill White and the Marines stuck on the island chain for seven months, and they learned guerrilla warfare. When I was in high school marching band and working for a country club at 17, Bill describes crawling through a pool of muck made up of the sludge of rotted Japanese bodies near their Tenere River, all to avoid machine gun fire. 
He says he couldn't clean it off him for a few days because of the fighting. Not that I imagine he had much soap. The minute the Battle of Guadalcanal changed. Bill White might have been tough going into it, but something seemed to turn on in his psyche and he gave voice to it. He says in the oral history that, quote, The Japs had us outnumbered quite a bit. We learned sleeping in the jungle. When it rained, we got wet. When the sun came out, we dried off. We slept where we fell. We got so good fighting those Japanese that our sense of smell got 30% better. Our sense of hearing got 30% better. Our sense of seeing got 30% better. We could hear a Jap a quarter mile away. We could smell him a quarter mile away, and if he made any kind of move, we could see him a quarter mile away. That was something unusual. We could never do that before. Our senses came to us, and that's what killed Japs on Guadalcanal. And I was that way with those senses years after I got back. A cat could walk around my house or a dog at night and I could hear it. A rat could gnaw on anything in the basement I could hear him. I lived two blocks from town. I could hear people walking in town. End quote. He continues talking about this kind of uh, alarming development, saying, quote, Our bodies were so tense. It was like pulling back a bowstring. That's how tense you were because you were on alert all the time. You never slept much. Our motto after we got off Tanambogo and Tulagi was never surrender, never retreat, take no prisoners, and fight to the death, end quote. Let me repeat that for you. Never surrender, never retreat, take no prisoners, and fight to the death. It sounds cliche, maybe over the top. When you hear Bill White's stories and realize he had done all of that, lived all of it, you realize the depth of that saying. The interviewer asks him if it was true that he took no prisoners. This is in the uh, oral history. Bill White says, quote, Special forces didn't take no prisoners. We killed them all, all we could, and wanted to kill more. That's just the way American boys think, or at least those American boys thought that way. End quote. I think it's worth trying to put yourselves in the shoes of 17-year-old Tennessean thrown for a half a year into a dense Pacific jungle. The insects were loud, the temperature high, and your unit was outnumbered by the Japanese Imperial Marines, soldiers who carried curved samurai swords with hilts wrapped in silk, looking like someone Jack Armstrong, the all-American boy, would meet in his travels. You, yourself, had never left McMinn County and had only seen Japanese faces and pictures. And these strange people with their radically different culture were trying to kill you. In this strange land, all you had was your training and your willpower and whatever weapons you could scrounge. Death walked next to you at every moment. When you think about what Bill said about being a child of the Great Depression and how that made him into a tougher soldier, you have to wonder if you have it in you. I know that I didn't at his age, and I don't know that I could ever. If you have a strong stomach, that same Life magazine article I quoted earlier has one of the most famous pictures coming out of the Guadalcanal campaign. It's a shrunken Japanese head mounted on a tank by American soldiers as a way to strike fear into their enemies. The Marines took Guadalcanal after those many months. After extracting the tired men from the jungle, the Marine Command sent Bill to allied New Zealand for R&R. There he enjoyed some time off. Bill says it was, quote, dairy country, steak and eggs, milk and butter. It was a good, good country. We liked NZ. And plenty of women. That went a long way with that steak and eggs, end quote. While they enjoyed their R&R, the Japanese didn't sit still. They further fortified their perimeter islands. 
The Americans had struck a huge blow at Guadalcanal, and the Japanese didn't intend to let the Marines swim right on the mainland Japan. The next target of the American Navy was an atoll called Tarawa. Tarawa lay in the Central Pacific region and represented the first American offensive beyond the Southern Pacific Islands near Australia. Before Guadalcanal, Bill went into battle with the belief that the Japanese couldn't put up a good fight. Him and his buddies learned quickly that the Japanese had serious prowess. Again, before Tarawa, the naval command told Bill and the raiders that battleships and bombers had obliterated most resistance on the island and that the Marines could walk in unmolested. The veterans of Guadalcanal had their doubts. The doubts were well-founded. Every beach on the island must have looked like a porcupine with machine guns for quills. Bill says that the beach chosen for his unit's landing site had an old barge beached like a steel whale and bristling with guns. Machine gun fire thrown their way came so fast and so hard that landing rounds looked like raindrops on the water. Because of a miscalculation with the tides at several of the landing sites, Hagen boats beached on reefs were easy targets for machine gun fire. All around Bill, Marines fell. Feeling the eyes of the Japanese soldiers on him, Bill leapt into the water. Bullets spattered the surf. There's a snake in eastern Tennessee called the eastern hognose snake. When confronted by a predator, the snake goes belly up and opens its mouth in a death rectus. It plays dead. Bill, in the face of an overwhelming force, donned the only camouflage available to him. He played dead. And it worked. Bill floated in the red tide among the bodies of his countrymen, inching closer to shore with every cycle of the tide. As Bill got to the shallows, he sprang up. Moving as fast as he could, he advanced up the beach, boots sinking in sand. When he got his back against a four-foot-high seawall, Bill rested, and so he looked back into the water at the slaughter. Marines died by the hundreds, and can't even imagine what it must have looked like. But Bill started to notice a body moving the wrong way with the tide. Someone else played dead. That man sprinted up the beach and slid to a stop against the seawall. Bill says in the oral history that, quote, first thing you know, bam, up he comes in here with me. Two Marines. Well, you have two Marines, you could do some fighting, you see. End quote. Next thing you know, he had a dozen Marines. Their cunning had taken them through the machine gun fire. With grenades and rifle, they knocked out one pillbox, then another. Japanese machine guns quieted. Death out in the water started to slow. Others joined them. The breach in the Japanese defenses widened. As Bill went along with his impromptu squad, he didn't know any of the men who'd made it out that far, he got bogged down by casualties. Men had jaws and stomachs blown out by bullets. Finding a place for the wounded in a dugout filled with dead Japanese infantry and officers, Bill organized first aid. He laid down his rifle and started to help a man with a shot kneecap. Then he noticed one of the Japanese soldiers looked wrong. The soldier's eyes were open. Just barely, but open. He describes whipping around to grab his rifle, wheeling back around and shooting. The Japanese soldier had raised a pistol in the time it took Bill to grab his own firearm. Bill shot the Japanese officer through the hand, bayoneted him in the throat, and shot him twice more. Now uneasy, Bill went down the dugout. He stopped at every body to stab it with his bayonet. This was when Bill learned that when you stab a man and he's dead, he doesn't bleed. Some of the Japanese soldiers he stabbed did bleed. Bill dispatched a few more who had been faking death to try and kill American soldiers. 
So the Marines weren't the only ones that learned to play dead. Once again, Japanese showed their ferocity as opponents. When one of his fellow soldiers fell to the ground with a gunshot wound to the head, Bill reacted as only Bill White could. He plunged into the bolt hole in the fortifications where the shot had come from. Inside, it was pitch black. Bill describes how he heard the sound of metal cutting air. Someone inside blindly swung a samurai sword. Using the dark to his advantage, Bill waited for the man to step into the light and killed him with his bayonet. When Bill could get light into the room, he realized he'd killed a high-ranking Japanese officer. One book alleges that Bill later identified this man as Rear Admiral Kaiji Shibaski, the Tarawa garrison commander. Bill walked away from the encounter with trophies, including the officer's samurai sword. Tarawa had challenged the Marines far more than they expected. The resistance made Guadalcanal look tame in comparison. Japanese snipers shot from palm trees, American flamethrowers torched pillboxes, tanks fell into pit traps and were lit on fire, cooking the men inside like beans in a can. The Marines advanced through the island with great losses, but came away victorious. Tarawa represented one of the most vicious fights the Marines had ever fought, but it was eclipsed by Okinawa and Iwo Jima. Bill didn't go any further into the Pacific. He'd not only been injured at Tarawa, wounded by a stray round, but also contracted malaria from one of the many mosquitoes I talked about before. The Marines sent him back to Pearl Harbor and then to South Carolina, where he spent some time teaching jungle warfare. That samurai sword? Well, he mailed it back in 1943, but he wouldn't get home until 1945. He had a lot of work to do. They promoted him to drill sergeant, making Bill the person he hated when he first enlisted. He says that he had all the makings of a drill sergeant, too, being stubborn, tough as nails, and most importantly, experienced in the new kinds of warfare the recruits would need to learn to succeed in the Pacific Theater. Bill White couldn't have been any older than 22 by the time the war drew to a close. Imagine the things he'd seen by the time most of young adults in our society are just getting through college. Later, with his discharge papers and mustering pay in his pocket, Bill White went home, back to Athens. I'm going to leave you with a portrait or a scene for Bill White, an image to stick with you after you've heard about his incredible experiences. And I've told you about those experiences because I wanted you to know about his character and his toughness and what he had gone through. So the, back to this portrait, this picture. Now it's late afternoon. A bus pulls up in McMinn County in 1945, maybe on the edge of town, close to his parents' home. The road is dirt, like so many in Athens, and it's bordered by sweet gum trees with their star-shaped leaves. It's fall, so some of those leaves are already tumbling to the ground and curling up like dead men's hands. Bill White doesn't mind that he's being dropped off at the end of town. He can walk. He's done plenty of that, not only as a kid in Athens, but on Guadalcanal and Tarawa. As he steps off the bus, he's stepping off with a couple of other GIs also discharged. Bill probably knows a few from his boyhood, which must have seemed like a lifetime ago. Waiting for them at the bus stop are five deputies of the McMinn County Sheriff's Office. They swagger. Their starched white shirts are bright in the afternoon sun. Bill immediately identifies many of them as men who'd stayed home, who'd never gone to war. Some of the deputies are the same age as the G.I.s but they have outsized opinions of themselves and they want to use their power. 
The GIs exit the bus, but they're wary. The deputies step up. These deputies declare one of the GIs drunk. They grab him. The deputies not only arrest him, but begin to arrest his friends, the other GIs. As they write up the paperwork, the deputies demand fees. Pay the fee, stay out of jail. The mustering pay that the GIs had just earned from fighting, for years often, goes right into the coffers of the Democrat Sheriff's Office under Paul Cantrell's minions. So this happened once, then again, then again. Men returning from World War II were threatened on trumped-up charges. A shakedown worthy of mobsters from the Prohibition era took place daily on the roads of McMinn County. Bill White has just returned home from fighting and killing and sweating in the jungle. He's come home to Athens and veteran, and he's just seen the corruption in action. In the next chapter, we'll go into great detail about the forms of that corruption. You'll learn all its niceties and how insidiously it crept into the life in Athens. Bill says about this occupation by corrupt forces in Athens, quote, fees by arrests. I watched a lot of that going on. And the more I watched, the sicker I got. We decided that we'd get together. An election's coming up, you know. End quote. That's the 1946 election that you'll come to know and love. The reason I really like Bill White's story is partially because of a book I read. If you've never heard of The Hero of a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell, it's worth a look. The central thesis of the book is this. The archetypal journey of a hero starts and proceeds and ends the same way in every story. This heroic story is something that comforts us. It appears in our culture again and again. So let me tell you the outline of the hero's journey that Bill White participated in. Hero starts in an ordinary world. They might be troubled, but they're stable. They receive a call to action. Their life gets flipped upside down. In this story told again and again, the hero journeys far, meets mentors, and fights demons. When the hero comes home, they're a changed person with new skills. Now, you catch the same beats in Bill White's story. Bill leads a normal life for a young man in Tennessee until FDR calls him to action against a foreign enemy. He survives horrific battles, and Uncle Sam's Marines teach him new skills. Having slain his innocence and his demons, Bill returns home. There, he's confronted with a corrupt system with men who throw elections and rob GIs at gunpoint. Will he put his skills to the test? Will the hero fulfill the end of his story? Keep that image of Bill White's homecoming in your mind, because we're going to tell the story of another Tennessean named Paul Cantrell. He's the flip side of the soldier's tale. Despite their differences in occupation, age, and in life experience, these two men will cross paths violently in the future. In the next episode of Counted As Cast, we'll talk about the political career of Paul Cantrell and set the stage for the Battle of Athens. Thanks for listening. Join me in the next episode, Chapter 2, The Politician.